this is the remnant of the church that is going to come together, 10% of it, uh, to finish the work of God here in the end time, or at least finish the human part of it before Christ takes uh, direct command uh, when he returns. So, here in chapter 46, I'm going to skip along today rather than going verse by verse because I have several chapters here I want to cover. And it's not that they're not important. It's that I want to kind of stick to the main theme of what we've been discussing. And up until this point, it's been pretty specific. And it even is through these next several chapters. But I want to wrap this up. And we've been through these chapters, I guess, really several times over the last years. But I'll just kind of hit some highlights through here to show you the thread and then get to some part that is directly involved in a way that ties in with what we're discussing more directly. Uh, here in chapter 46, he's talking about the major gods of Babylon and how they failed them. And tells us in chapter 3, the remnant of Jacob, to hearken to him and to listen. He says in verse 4, Even to your old age I am he, and even to your whorehairs will I carry you. Uh, he tells us in Haggai and in Ezra that he will work through some very old men who are still alive after the former temple is dissipated and the latter temple is established. So here he's reminding us in this context that he's with us even though we're getting old and creaky and unable to do much. Uh, he says, I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. So deliverance is on its way. Um, there in Habakkuk it says that it will not tarry, it will come, don't despair, or something of that nature, that it will come and will not tarry. So even though it seems like a long time to us and that God is just standing back, he, he intends to finish up what he started, and he will do it fairly rapidly, I think, now. Uh, we have been tarrying for quite some time and waiting for these things to happen. But he's waiting for us to turn to him with our whole heart, too. So there's always that side of it. Verse 9, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring, as he has all through this context, that this is all about God, not about man or us. Uh, he says on down in the end of verse 10, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So he is going to do the things he's been promising. He says at the end of verse 13, I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So the location is Zion. I said we would talk about the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the end-time Philadelphia church, which is very shortly going to appear in, a, in an organized fashion. And as we go through this context, we're talking about a lot about who, uh, the two leaders and the witnesses, all the people, but uh, and what they will do. But along the way, we pick up clues here and there about where and why. Uh, where is Zion and Jerusalem, the original promised land? Why is to show who God is and to deliver his remnant people. And... Uh, who is those who have been called out who remain faithful and turn to God with their whole heart, and what is deliverance and salvation, ultimately. Uh, so all the questions are being answered as we go through here, if you're noticing that. 
Uh, chapter 47 is kind of inset in this context, but it is germane to the timing because it is a chapter about the virgin daughter of Babylon to sit on the ground. There is no throne to sit on. It's going to be removed. And this chapter is very, very similar to uh, Revelation 18 and should be tied together about fleeing from Babylon and how her plagues will come and she'll fall very, very quickly. And that Babylon in this end-time context is undeniably the United States of America, which is going to fall. We're certainly the leaders of the worldwide Babylon of Satan. And uh, we will be completely destroyed by the beast and the false prophet, which are even now arising. So I'm not going to that more. Let's go on to 48 to keep this story. But that chapter fits in because it says that the remnant will flee there in Jeremiah 50, just ahead of the northern army that's coming to destroy this country. And they'll say, how do I get to Zion? <laughs> so there is the setting, and there is somewhat the timing, and probably pretty close. In chapter 48, he says, Hear you this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, waters of the living doctrines, the truths of Christ, uh, to the spiritual Jews, you're not going to get anything good out of the physical Jews right now because they are apostate from Christ and the Father in heaven, as Christ told them and when he was here on the earth. And that hasn't improved at all. If anything, it's gotten worse. So he's talking here a spiritual Judah, the church, which swear by the name of the Eternal and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. So the church is indicted for taking God's name but not adhering to and seeking the truth and not being as righteous as we ought to be. And that's why we have been scattered as we have been scattered, is that the self-righteousness might go away and righteousness appear. For they call themselves of the holy city, and anybody in the greater church of God still says they are of, of God, they don't understand what the holy city means in code here, but they do say they're of God. Uh, and look upon the God of Israel, but not doing it as they should. Uh, verse 4, Because I knew that you're obstinate, stubborn, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your brow brass. Now, when you have people with that attitude, uh, it is very difficult to change that attitude. So it takes a lot of pressure, a lot of heat, a lot of trial, a lot of adversity. Uh, difficulties is what makes us bend our will to God and turn to Him with our heart. There's no other proven method. <laughs> Kindness, sweetness, love, those are all things of God. But when people have departed from the loving God and are not living the standard that we should be, then he has to take severe measures to get us where we need to be. That's unfortunate, but that's the way human beings are. Therefore, the tribulation, the cataclysm, uh, the seven last plagues, all those things are in order because that's what it's going to take to humble mankind as a whole. And even his spiritual uh, Israel has difficulties, as he's pointing out here. 
Uh, verse 9, he does say, For his name's sake he will defer his anger, and for my praise will I refrain for you, that I cut you not off. Behold, I have refined you, but not for silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. So he backs up the words that I just mentioned. Uh, we will go through difficulties. Many are the trials, tribulations, and troubles of the righteous. But God will deliver them, he said in Psalm 34:19, And he says the same thing here in different words. <coughs> for my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory to another? So God is going to turn, essentially, the world, ultimately, from now until the great white throne judgment, to him. Why should his name be diminished as a father who failed? All the kids that he's produced from Adam on down uh, rebel against him and are not in the kingdom of God ultimately. No, he's a successful father. And whatever it takes, whatever pressures, he's going to use to get us where he wants us. And thankfully for us, he's willing to do that. So he says to count it all joy when you suffer trials and troubles and persecutions. Uh, that's hard to do. It's easy to sit here and say that, but then when the world and Satan come down on you, uh, it's not easy to count it joyful. But really, uh, if we understand why God lets these things come on us, that it's to help us, to try us, to get us to learn, to submit to Him, then that's a joyful thing when we finally finally get there and get into the attitude that he wants us in. Then you can look back and say, well, it turned into joy even though it was difficult at the time. <clears throat> Verse 18, O oh, oh you that heart, have hearkened to my commandments, then had your peace been as a river and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. So those who do heed, who listen, who pay attention, and follow through, are going to have peace and righteousness. Verse 20, he again uh, says, To go you forth of Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing declare you, tell this, uttered even to the end of the earth. Say you, the Eternal has redeemed his servant Jacob. So, as the remnant, faithful remnant, returns to Zion, uh, gets away from Babylon, they will be redeemed from the destruction that is to come. And they will be fed and watered and taken care of in the desert, as it says in verse 21. <clears throat> Chapter 49 now, he says to listen. He personifies Israel here. Israel saying, God called me from the womb, and so on. And that's shown in verse 3. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So here he's speaking to Israel, and particularly to spiritual Israel here in the end time. He won't deal with physical Israel until the millennium. So he's dealing with us now, and this is an end time prophecy. He says, verse 5, And now says the Eternal would form me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered. And as we sit here today, the remnant has not been gathered. Well, maybe a very, very small uh, earnest money has been brought out, but no, no remnant yet. Yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Eternal, and my God shall be my strength. So we look to God and His glory 
And what little strength we might have, we get from him, even though we have not yet been gathered. We still have to look to God for any strength we might have. And he said, Is it a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? So he says, I haven't gathered yet. And you who are seeking to do what you should do, uh, he says, to restore the preserved of Israel. So we, if we are obeying God, we'll have a hand in that. I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles, that you may be my salvation to the end of the earth. So haven't we been reading in this context about we are to, how we are to be his witnesses, that he is God? And didn't Christ say that we are to be a light set on a hill that cannot be hid? Uh, and here he terms it a light to the Gentiles. Now that would be those who are physically Gentile by blood, and I do believe that it includes those who are Israelite by blood but are Gentile spiritually. So those who are called out, those who will serve God, have been commissioned to be a light to the rest of the world. And that's what we have to be in love, and kindness, and mercy, and forgiveness, and long-suffering, and patience, and the things of God, and the attitudes of God we are to have, no matter who comes against us. Anger is but for a moment with God, and he tells us how long we're to be angry. He commands us to be over our anger by sundown. That doesn't give you much of a window. Uh, but we're not to remain angry. We're not to be in an angry state. Uh, he tells us to forgive each other seven, 70 times 7 in one day. We have trouble forgiving someone in 10 or 20 years, it seems. But God says we should be willing to, and that's not a, that's not a, if it had if come to 491, you could do that too. But he's giving a, for instance, not seven times, but seven times 70. So, forgiveness is something that we need to all have in our hearts and minds. We should operate daily, moment by moment, in the mode and attitude of forgiveness and mercy. His mercy endures forever. So, if we are merciful, if we're forgiving, we do not carry anger, but we get rid of it. Uh, then we're becoming a light. But hate, anger, bitterness, and all those negative attitudes do not come from God. He is not that way. And he tells us not to be that way. So we need to be very, very careful uh, in attitudes we have toward brothers and sisters in the faith, toward the world as a whole. God doesn't hate the world. There's a lot of sin out there, isn't there? But does God hate the world? No, his anger will be but for a moment. And he sent his son that the whole world might be saved. So he loved the world enough that he sent his only begotten son. So he doesn't love sin, but he does love sinners. And we're all sinners, and we have to be forgiving and merciful one of another. I don't know how many times I've said that in the last two or three or four or five years, but it's the truth. That's what we need to be. What did Christ say to all those that did what they did to him? Forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. So even at a time of great anguish 
of great uh, embarrassment, if you will, of great humiliation, <clears throat> and in the face of death, he said, forgive them. And that's where we need to be. If we're to be, to be a light to the Gentiles, that's what we have to be. People view the witness at the end time or the two witnesses as going out and preaching to the world about how evil and rotten and nasty they are and how they're all going to go to hell. You know, just kind of summarizing what a lot of people think that message is. No, it's not the message. The message is that God is God and that He is going to come and rule the world and bring peace. And if you want peace and safety out of all the misery and destruction that the beast and false church and Satan are putting upon you, then you need to do as these people in Zion and forgive and love and show mercy and get, out, get rid of your carnality and selfishness and obey God, and you can have peace and righteousness as a river also. So let's not, let's not get detached from the message that God puts forth in this very context from chapter 40 on. <clears throat> You're going to wither and die as grass, Isaiah 40. But repent and overcome and admit who God is. That's overall what the message is all about and what the focus is. And we're to be a part of that message as his witnesses that he is God. Uh, verse 14, But Zion said, The Eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. So that is telling us that we will enter a time while we are waiting uh, as Habakkuk said, it will not tarry, but there is a period of time that seems long to us, and it will seem as if God has simply forgotten us. Here we're floundering around in frustration, trying to figure out the right path, <clears throat> as Ezra, I think, put it, to find a way for us and our little ones, as they were there to build a temple, and we're here to do the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> a little glass of water. But we would get to the point of frustration. Has God forgotten all about us? Is, is this really real? <clears throat> yes, it is really real. Let's see what he says. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. In other words, a woman will forget her hungry, crying baby before I will forget you. You mothers understand that more than I do, but I think it's something we can all relate to. Behold, I have engraved you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I'm looking at where you're living, what you're doing, your walls. <clears throat> it's ever there, like the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, and he counts the hair of our head, as Christ put it. Same, same analogy. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go forth from you. So a remnant of God's children are going to come to us, and those that detract or hate or make themselves enemies of will leave. Lift up your eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to you. Remember what it said at the end of chapter 45, the Ethiopians and Sabaeans and so on would come and say, we want to work with you. As I live, says the Eternal, 
you shall surely clothe you with them, and as with an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. So, the 144,000 are the first fruits, Revelation 14, 7, and they are the bride of Christ. And here he's telling the end-time people, the end-time remnant ultimately, as these people come to bind them on us, to take them in, to take care of them, to, to tie them to us as much as we can, like a bride does. For your waste and your desolate places and the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. People are going to come and we won't have room for them all. And they that swallowed you up shall be far away. The children which you shall have after you have lost the other. So somewhere in the mix, uh, children are going to be lost and then others will come. And shall say again in your ear, the place is too narrow for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. So apparently, whatever God gives us is going to be too small for everyone that shows up. And provisions are going to have to be made. Uh, he does say that there will be villages around in Jerusalem will be comprised of those villages <coughs> there in, in uh, Zechariah 2. Then shall you say in your heart, Who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro? And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where have they been? Where did all these people come from? Will be our reaction. God is going to bring them, he says, in several places, from the north, south, east, and west, from all over the world, to build his temple and to build Jerusalem and to be witnesses that he is God. That's what this whole context is about. Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. Last verse of Haggai 2 says that Zerubbabel will be the standard or the ensign that he sets up before the people, before the Gentiles. Well, a representative of God is one to show who God is, as I said. That's the focus, and that's the message. And he'll be set up as a standard to let people know who God is, because nobody today on the world hardly at all knows. <coughs> Into verse 26, All flesh shall know that I, the Eternal, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. <coughs> the whole world is going to hate God's people. Uh, they will have two witnesses going around telling all of them and performing plagues and miracles and things to show the power of God. So they'll all know. And when those two are killed, the whole world's going to have a party. Celebrate. They're, they're gone. They're dead. They're out of our hair. So they're going to know who God's people are. And those two are going to be pointing back to the other witnesses, the remnant that are in Zion and Jerusalem at the time, and saying, those are God's people. So if you think there won't be hate and pressure from the world upon those who are in a place of safety, think again, because there will be a great deal done, and they will try to destroy. Revelation 12, Satan sends out a flood, even as they're leaving Jerusalem to go to the place of safety in Zion, and they will be destroyed by God. 
Verse 50, 50, uh, chapter 50, Thus says the Eternal, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom I have put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Now what did God do to worldwide church of God? Because of our iniquities, we are separated from God, as he says in chapter 59, verse 2 here, and he put our mother away, scattered her, shattered her. So now what? Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? He said earlier, there's no man to show, but he would send one to give the message. When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I can't redeem? Are you totally lost once this uh, mother is put away, the church? For have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my uh, power, uh, wait a minute, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stink because there is no water, and dies for thirst. He uses the Red Sea, the Jordan being dried up over and over and over through the end-time context. And there is one place that it shows that what he does in the end time will make the Red Sea and the Jordan River look like child play. It's here in Isaiah, I think. <clears throat> we might even run across it. Uh, and then Isaiah says that God had given him a tongue of the learned and he would be able to help those that are weary uh, and to hear. So there's a good message here uh, if, we, if we see that. Good tidings to Zion. The message of God's deliverance. Then it shows Christ in verse 6 and 7 uh, about how he gave his back to the smiters and so on. And even Zerubbabel is a very distinct type of Christ at the end. And that analogy applies to him as well uh, as to the actual Christ who did suffer those things physically here on the earth. Now to 51, <clears throat> hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. This can only be the church of God. Those called out from the world are the only ones who are seeking true righteousness, or who even understand what it is. Now we haven't been able to live up to it the way we should, it's the reason we've been scattered. But, and even currently are being scattered, if you will. We haven't lived up to what we should be. You that seek the eternal, look to the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. Uh, look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah, the, Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. So he says, do as Abraham did. Do as Sarah did. Trust in God and faithfulness. Obey him. Do whatever he says, even to the sacrificing of a son, if he asks you to. <clears throat> we are to look to that kind of righteousness. For the Lord shall comfort Zion, and will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the eternal. Joy and gladness shall be formed therein, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. So here's good tidings to Zion, to the church. If we will do what he says, if we'll seek God and we'll seek to be like Abraham and Sarah were, our hearts need to be turned to our fathers. That's what this is talking about. Uh, he was patient. He was giving. What happened when uh, 
Abraham and Lot had a disagreement. Abraham said, well, you pick your way, I'll take what's left. We need to be willing to give when we need to. To even be defrauded before we uh, take people to court. Very clear in Corinthians. Um, where was it? Verse 4. Hearken to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. So he's going to relax his judgment that he has had on us and begin to bless us so that we can be a light to the people of the world. <clears throat> he says his righteousness is near. Verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. So the timing is the end time here. It's not the millennium. These blessings come before that. Uh, this is in the time of the end before the heavens are darkened and vanish away. Hearken to me, you that know righteousness. Well, we may know righteousness, but hearers of righteousness and not doers of righteousness are the ones that God will look to. Uh, verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the eternal. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. So our cry partly is to God to be awake, to be alert, to be alive. Uh, verse, last verse of Zechariah 2 says that Christ will rise and uh, two or three other places talk about how he'll begin to do his mighty and magnificent work. So it's like he's sitting and he's holding back and waiting, and then he awakes or he gets up and goes to work, which he will do shortly. <clears throat> and this, again, is in the timing of the end time, as just mentioned. Verse 11, Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion, <clears throat> and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. Once God turns his face back to us in the end time, uh, then it's a matter of staying faithful to the very end and the resurrection and having life eternal. Verse 12, I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the Son of Man, which shall be made as grass and withers, as he said there in chapter 40. And, and forget God. We can't do that. We, we look to him. He tells us in Isaiah 7, not to, or 8, uh, not to fear this conspiracy that is now upon us, tightening every day, but to fear him and trust him, and he will take care of us. <coughs> Verse 16 I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, You are my people. Then in verse 17, another call to wake up. Stand up, Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Eternal the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. So he tells his end-time people, that they also, even as we might call out to God to awake and save us, we are to wake up, <clears throat> we have suffered the destruction that God had pronounced upon the church. We've been through that. We're coming through, I won't say unscathed, hopefully, hopefully humili or humbled, 
and made meeker and more obedient as a result. But he says, we've drunk at God's fury. And boy, have we. And here's the state we find ourselves in. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Remember Micah 4? Your king is dead, your counselor is perished. What do you do? <laughs> there you are. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? So we've suffered spiritual famine and pestilence and sword. And many have died or are spiritually ill. We have to be healed. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Verse 21, Therefore hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Spiritually drunk. Staggering about. Not having... The whole church is staggering around. They don't have any guidance, any direction. They don't have anybody that understands. Those who call themselves apostles and are leading different groups, they don't know this story. They don't understand what God is doing whatsoever. They still think if they print enough articles and and blather on the TV enough, they're going to go to Petra and be saved. That's all they know. They don't know what God's doing. <clears throat> so he says he's going to take out of our hand the cup of trembling in verse 22 and put it in the hand of them that afflict you. So those who stand against God's people in the end are going to go into confusion. But you've laid your body as the ground, and as a street to them that went over. So we've been pummeled and pounded and let ourselves be walked upon by Babylon and even by false leaders in the church, for that matter. So he tells us, the church then, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. <clears throat> put on your beautiful garments. That's righteousness. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. <laughs> there had been up to a point that God says when he brings a remnant together there's not going to be the uncircumcised and unclean spiritually he's going to send faithful people who have not bowed their knee to Baal shake yourself from the dust we've been thrown in the dust into the dirt of the street by this scattering that's happened arise and sit up O Jerusalem Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So we've been in captive of Babylon, and even here, though we've been partially delivered, and we're out in the right wilderness area near Zion, uh, we're still not fully delivered, are we? So he says, don't let them walk on you anymore. Sit up. For thus says the Eternal, you've sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. And he shows that blessing in chapter 55, which we're headed to very quickly here. And he says the Mitzriamite uh, uh, or Egyptian, and the Assyrian have oppressed us and will oppress us, uh, but he will destroy the Assyrian from before us, as we see in Micah 4 and in uh, Isaiah 7 to 10 and so on. <coughs> And those who have made us howl will be nothing. Now down in verse 7, it ties in the end-time church very directly here and the, uh, 
the leadership that God is going to provide, the two witnesses of Matthew 24 and Revelation 11 and Zechariah 3 and 4 and so on. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. So that's a singular pronoun there, just one, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation. You might say Isaiah is fulfilling that, because these are very encouraging words from long, long ago that God had written down. Uh, that says to Zion, your God reigns. So the message to God's church at the end is, your God reigns. And then it's going to be turned around and sent to the whole world. The God of heaven, almighty ruler of the universe, reigns. Pay attention. So the message to the church is the same message that will go to the world, ultimately. And now he changes to uh, more than one. Verse 8. Your watchmen, plural, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing... For they shall see eye to eye when the Eternal shall bring back or turn around Zion and begin to bless it. So the two are going to come together and see eye to eye. Uh, this shows that they did not for some period of time, just as it appears that Zerubbabel was not paying attention there in Zechariah 4, and God had to remand him a little bit and say, you know, you started the temple, you are going to finish it. Uh, that would not have been necessary to say, had he followed through. But he does say here, we just read it recently, uh, that even though he's righteous, he's blind and deaf and doesn't see. So he will not see until God begins to bring the blessings and turn things around, and then they will see eye to eye and sing together. Uh, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. So, at the time when God begins to restore and gather his remnant, the waste will be restored. For the Eternal has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So this is the time, in the end of the age, when God begins to comfort, to redeem, and to bless. The Eternal has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Now, see, he hasn't done that yet. So this coming together and this unity and this singing together comes just before God makes his holy arm bare in front of the nations. We just read in chapter 45 that he is going to use his hidden treasures and riches to show the whole world from east to west that he is God. He's also going to use signs and wonders to show that he is God. So he's going to make bare his holy, righteous arm before all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. <clears throat> they're going to see him saving his true believers. And ultimately, they're going to see him save all Israel, Romans 11:26, uh, in the millennium, and then in the great white throne judgment when all peoples will have had their opportunity at salvation. So what God is beginning with his remnant end-time church is the process that is going to carry through throughout the rest of the plan of salvation. And he began it small <coughs> with Enoch and Noah and, and Abraham and a few others from the Old Testament that are named in Hebrews 11. 
<clears throat> certainly with the early New Testament church, with the apostles, uh, but he is finishing it up here in the end. And he did not show his holy arm to all the nations when Christ was here on the earth. Uh, there was a great earthquake when he died, and some were resurrected, but the gospel didn't go around the world as a witness, and the heavens didn't shake, and the seven last plagues didn't come. So this is very definitely speaking of the time we're in right now, and are headed into day by day. In verse 11 he says, Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. He's mentioned Egypt, which typifies sin, in the Assyrian back in uh, verse 4. Uh, so he's talking of the whole satanic system and Babylon and Assyria and so on. And that we're to get away from that, depart from it, and not touch it. Because if we're to bear the vessels of the eternal, say the temple vessels, uh, and to bear, and God is going to bring the vessels of the temple, the human beings, the remnant, uh, to this place, then those who are here must be clean. We must be righteous in order to bear both the human being vessels and the gold and silver temple vessels. For you shall not go out with haste, <clears throat> or go by flight, for the Eternal will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now there is a very hasty flight in Matthew 24, when you see the armies gathered about Jerusalem, and you don't even go back in your house. You flee in absolute panic, if you will. But this talks about a gathering just ahead of the Assyrian, just ahead of the destruction of this country, when they'll go to Zion. Now, yeah, it, it uh, will be a time when you go, but there'll be a time for gathering. In other words, it won't be an instantaneous right now, uh, forget to call the dog type of thing. It'll be uh, uh, some time allotted for this to happen. Uh, and then in chapter 53, I won't go through. We read it at Passover most generally, uh, but it's about Christ and all that he went through for us, and it's probably about as important a chapter as there is in the Bible. Uh, but I think I want to refer to it here primarily for timing more than review all that he went through, uh, because that's more the subject that we're in rather than him and, and everything he did for us. I don't mean to diminish that at all, uh, because what he did was beyond our comprehension in saving sinners, if you will. But here you have a time just before the end when God's two leaders are going to come together and see eye to eye and sing together the things of God. And it may be just before Passover time. And I'm Because why is this chapter set in here where it is and how it is? He's talking to the church and how we should wake up and rise and serve him. And then he cuts immediately to everything that Christ did to save us. Now that fits in the context, yes, but is he also giving us timing is my question. Uh, when did he give his sacrifice that began redemption and deliverance? 
at Passover when he died. And here, uh, it might be that as well. He says he's going to bless us in the first month, there in Joel 2, uh, which if it's speaking of, of God's heavenly calendar, first month, that's in April generally. And that's when Passover is. Now, he has given all kinds of things to happen here in the end time with both Worldwide Church of God, with other groups, and with our group, both bad and good, in January, uh, the first month of the Julian calendar. So who knows exactly what this means, but he does say he will pour out his blessing during the time of the latter rains. And the early rains come during January, February, and the latter rains more toward March and April. So that could tie together here to indicate somewhat the timing. It would also be that if if the... Uh, if the tribulation begins in the springtime, three and a half years later, when Christ returns, would be in, at the time of the Feast of Trumpets. So, perhaps deliverance begins in the spring. Let's go on to 54, because then it continues on the other side. He's going to bring the leaders together, perhaps just before Passover, this coming year, the next year, who knows. Uh, but... Then he shows Christ, verse 50, uh, let, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 53 before we go on. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who's going to believe this story? Who's going to understand it? Not very many. And not until God begins to show signs and wonders and his treasures and so on, and then God's people are going to be beginning to wake up, and then the world is going to begin to understand who God is. So, this will not be believed until it happens. Then chapter 54, Seeing, O barren, you that did not bear, remember we're going to lose children, and then have more children than we know what to do with. Seeing, O barren, like a woman that didn't have children, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the eternal. So you could, he's using an analogy here. You could have a married woman that had a bunch of kids, uh, and then you could have a barren woman that didn't have any, and the barren one is going to wind up with more. By what? By God's blessing by God's gathering, not by anything that man does. Remember Abraham and Sarah, the pit from whence we were digged? <laughs> she couldn't have any children. She was a barren woman. And then God blessed her with Isaac, who was spread as the sands of the sea after that, through Jacob and Joseph and so on. But it is in this context, verse 2, that he says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations, spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. In other words, you need a bigger tent and you need deeper stakes because there's so many coming you won't be able to handle it. Uh, you'll break forth on the right and on the left, verse 3. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, verse 4. Uh, neither shall you be confounded or put to shame. You shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Remember, he says he put us away just a couple, three, four chapters back here. And uh, we won't remember that anymore. For our Maker is our husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Redeemer 
the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Eternal has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, as, as barren, in other words. You were down to the point, didn't have anything left. Uh, For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. And this, he said, is like the waters of Noah and the rainbow to him. Uh, Verse 11 is encouraging. O you afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, those of us who have been frustrated, uh, upset, wondering, when is God going to deliver? How is God going to deliver? What a mess we're in. I will lay your stones with fair colors and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your windows of agates and your gates of carbuncles and all your borders of pleasant stones. And all your children shall be taught of the eternal, and great shall be the peace of your children, those who come. He says in Haggai that in this place will I bring peace when he gathers the remnant together. Who's talking about the same time? Uh, But behold, I've created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the waster to destroy. But he tells us that he's made us a new threshing instrument there in Micah 4, and again, we've already read here in this context. Uh, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. So the destroyer, the Assyrian, is coming, but he's not going to destroy God's people. Every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. Our righteousness cannot be our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, our putting ourselves above others of putting others down and condemning others, but it has to be the righteousness of God, which is love, mercy, forgiveness, peace, long-suffering, patience, joy, and all those fruits of the Spirit of God, not carnal works of the flesh and Satan. That's the kind of righteousness God puts forth, and we must do that. Then in chapter 55, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, what does he say in Revelation? But if we don't take the mark of the beast, the 666, we will not be able to buy and sell. But here he's telling us, even if you, if you don't take that mark, if you stay faithful to him, he will provide what you need without money. You won't need money with no price. Did they need money for manna and quail in the desert? No, they needed complicity with God. They needed obedience. They needed to shut their mouths and quit murmuring and muttering. And then he delivered them. And it didn't cost them money. (laughs) He just rained it out of heaven and flew it into camp. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Remember Haggai there, just before he says he's going to gather the people to build the temple? He says you have pockets with holes. And you bring home money, and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. says the same thing here. Well, what's the answer to that? Hearken diligently to me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear. 
and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Remember, David had some sins that God caused him to answer to, numbering Israel, Bashara, Uriah, various things. He says, I'll make an ever everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. What did he do with David? He showed him a great deal of mercy. He forgave all his sins. He's going to make him a king of all Israel in the millennium and throughout the kingdom of God. So if we will turn to God and obey, he's going to show mercy on us and give us the same covenant that he gave David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Verse 6, Seek God while he may be found. Call while he is near. So he calls upon us, if we're going to be a part of what he's just been talking about, to do something. Let the wicked forsake his way. Ezekiel 33 says it doesn't matter if we've been wicked. If we forsake it and turn to him, we'll be blessed. And if we've been righteous and we turn to wickedness, we'll be cursed. For God is forever merciful. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the eternal, and he will have mercy upon him. So it doesn't matter how bad you are, I am, or how disobedient we may have been in our lives. We are all the weak in the base, are we, and were we not? Yes. Well, God says he'll forgive us if we turn from whatever our sin is. He will abundantly pardon. Not grievously, not grudgingly, but abundantly. That's his heart and his mind. That's the mind we must come to have. As he says, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. He will abundantly pardon. He will be rich in mercy and forgiveness, even as he was with David, if we'll turn to him. doesn't matter what our sins have been. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Remember that song from, oh, when was it, the 70s, The Rose? You might have heard that one. But how you can have snow and desolation and cold and bitterness in the winter, but in the springtime with the sun love comes up the rose. Kind of a sad and almost emotional song, but... We've been through a spiritual winter. And God says with his mercy and his forgiveness, with the Son of God's love, we'll develop into a rose. And the desert will spring forth as a rose. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing where I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. That's in the context of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant there in Haggai and Zechariah again, lest we lose track of the thought here in the context that God is speaking of. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. It says he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness, chapter 41. 
And instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be to the eternal for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Once he blesses this time, it will remain, and it will carry through into the millennium and throughout the whole plan of salvation. So I'm going to stop there, and let's go to Matthew 24 and tie this together just a little bit for a couple minutes here. Uh, Matthew 24 and its accompanying uh, chapter in Luke 21 are much of the basis for the prophecies that we read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and so on. And here the disciples said, you know, what is the sign of your coming? When are all these things that you've told us are going to happen? He says, well, the temple's going to be thrown down and not one stone upon another uh, in verse 2. And the temple, of course, was not just the physical temple which was torn down, but I think it's also referring to the church which has been torn down, and uh, you know the stones are now pretty well scattered. Uh, he says he'll send one with the message. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came and says, when's this going to happen? He says, don't worry, it's down the road. Uh, verse 7 or verse 6, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So we see today wars and rumors of wars all over the globe. It's still somewhat at peace, as Zechariah says, but it's about, I mean, peace in comparison to what it's going to be with world war. Uh, so we're in the time now of wars and rumors of wars, but not yet the huge conflagration which is just around the corner. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. We've already seen that in the church on a spiritual level. Now we're about to see it on a physical level. These things are the beginning of sorrows. And then following what we're watching on the news today, <clears throat> then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Uh, ultimately, the Great Tribulation is going to start uh, 70 weeks after the command to build Jerusalem starts there in Daniel 9. And when that starts, Matthew 24, we'll see in just a moment, is when we flee to Zion, the place of safety. Uh, but many will be left behind. Ninety percent even of the church is going to be left behind. And they will be offended, and they will hate one another and betray one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. If you see love waxing cold, there has to be iniquity involved, one way or another. So, within the realm of God's people, his church, his called out ones, uh, we're going to see persecution from the outside, and we're going to see hate and offense and betrayal from within. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. <clears throat> then he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness to all nations, and then shall come the end. So for three and a half years, 1260 days, from the time the abomination is set up 
at the temple at Jerusalem, uh, the end will come. When does that happen? We read it in Revelation 11 when it, at the beginning of this series. The two witnesses are told to deal with the church first, the remnant, feed God's people, get God's people together, set them as a witness to the world. Then they are to go to the world and preach. Not before, but after the church is together and taken care of. So their first responsibility is to the church, feeding all seven of the churches from the golden oil there in Zechariah 4. These are the two anointed ones who are mentioned again in Revelation 11. So that's the first job. Then their job is to go to the world and preach the gospel to the world as a witness. Remember, we've just read, we are his witnesses. Those two are the ones who are doing the preaching as a witness. And when they are finished, they'll be killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And then the end of this age will come three and a half days later when the first resurrection occurs. Herbert Armstrong did not fulfill Matthew 24:14. I don't care what people think. He was not the Elijah to come uh, and restore all things, and then the end would occur. Uh, he was someone who did a great calling work, Matthew 28:19 and 20. And now God is selecting some from that, many are called, few are chosen, to do the latter temple, the very end-time work, and when the two leaders of that work have finished the witness to the world, they will die, the world will celebrate, and three, year, three and a half days later, uh, they're going to have the shock of their lives when Christ resurrects them. So that's when the end will come. So when you see that abomination spoken of by Daniel, uh, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand, the world thinks it'll be in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. No, it's going to be in God's temple in the real Jerusalem, in her own place, as Zechariah says in chapter 13, I think it is. He will yet choose that Jerusalem, and it has to be built. It doesn't exist today. The one in the Middle East exists, but it's a fake, and it's there. Why do you need to build it if it's already there? <laughs> got to be built here in the original promised land. And that's where the abomination will be set up in the true temple of God and among the people of God. Because that beast that sets it up is going to try to defile those who live there and kill them. So he says, flee to the mountains. You which be in Judea, flee into the mountains. And there are mountains nearby within a walking distance. And he says, woe to them that are with child and to them that are nursing in those days. And pray that your flight not be in inclement weather or on the Sabbath. So we need to pray that when this happens, it isn't on a day where our conscience would bother us if we were to flee. Uh, it should be on a different day, and it shouldn't be in bad weather, because uh, that could be tough. And even if it's at Passover time, just as when they came out of Mitzrayim, uh, around here in April, middle of April, which it usually falls, more or less, uh, you can have some pretty nasty weather. You can have snowstorms. You can have cold. So even if it's from here at that time, uh, this is a prayer that needs to be prayed. I think that's more a prayer that could be prayed from where we are today and where the true Jerusalem is than it would be in the Middle East. Come April in the Middle East, uh, you're not worried about winter. You're worried about summer. <laughs> By April, middle of April, it's hot over there. 
anyway, enough of that. So you flee, and then shall be great tribulation, such as will not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, or ever shall be. So he says, once that Jerusalem is built, the desolation will occur, the two witnesses will begin to uh, preach the time of tribulation, 1260 days, 42 months, and three and a half years. He uses all three because we will have returned to the 360-day year by then. The heavens will be in sync like they were at the creation. So he says, unless these days should be shortened, there will be no flesh saved alive, but for the elect's sake it will be shortened. So the time of trouble, and I don't know that it's speaking of the, of the 1260 of the Great Tribulation, but perhaps right after that, uh, that time will be shortened, because in verse 29 it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So the great tribulation is prior to the day of the Lord. The signs of the day of the Lord come immediately after the 1260 days. After the witness is given to the world, the elect, the 144,000, rise in the first resurrection, and then uh, the heavens are made dark, the day of the Lord begins, which is the time of the seven last plagues, which happen for a year. A day is as a year. So if you're expecting signs and wonders in the day of the Lord, it doesn't come till after the tribulation. It says so very clearly here. And we know that it's coming near because we're looking like a fig tree comes out in the spring in verse 32 and puts on leaves. We see the wars and rumors of wars. We see famine and pestilence and all this stuff increasing. And we see opposition even to false Christians or not true Christians ramping up right now. And the time is coming when they will turn on true Christians uh, with all guns, beginning at the time of the setting up of the, the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem at the temple. And that's when they will really turn against and be able to destroy uh, some of truth. You go into Daniel 11 and see that. Some of them of understanding shall fall. So this could go on and on. There's so much more in so many other books of the Bible. But I think it gives us an overview of the Philadelphia Church of God. Worldwide, I believe now, was Sardis. And some remain from that and need to be strengthened to stay alive. But most were self-righteous, thought too highly of themselves, were lukewarm, and turn to Laodiceanism, and lukewarmness God will not tolerate, so he spewed us out, but he says there will be some who, a remnant, 10%, who will not have turned their knee or bowed it to Baal, and who will repent. He says, I stand at the door and knock, open to me. Well, is he knocking now? I think so, because this is about to happen. And we need to be turning to God with all our heart so that we can be a part of this and part of the Philadelphia work, which is about to begin. So those from Philadelphia, or that will be Philadelphia, are those who have turned to righteousness. They will have shaken off the 
deadness, perhaps, of Sardis. They will have shaken off the self-righteousness of Laodicea and will come out of the scattering and be gathered together under the two to build the temple of God, to build Jerusalem, and be a witness to the world that God is God. That's why God called us here, is to be the beginning of that and to prepare a place for those people to be gathered. Uh, and he will gather them soon because the Assyrian is making lots of is banging lots of war drums right now, and the financial collapse looks like it's just getting closer and closer by the day. So how long will it last? I don't know, but I think we're getting very very close. Whether it's this year or next year, and I'm not going to try to call it, but it isn't very far away. It could happen within a week or a month. Uh, you know, when the thing comes down, he says it's going to happen fast. So predicting that isn't what we're about. What we're about is seeking God and righteousness and focusing on being what we ought to be so that we can be pure vessels, clean before God with the garments of righteousness so that we can be a light to the world. That's what he's called us to be. So let's do our utmost to become righteous to become like him, and not hearers only, but doers of the word, and to have the fruit of the Spirit of God. Mercy, patience, love, kindness, gentleness, and patience, as opposed to hate and bitterness and anger and prevarication and maliciousness and lying and cheating and adultery and those things which are the works of the flesh and are the base side of human nature that Satan plays on. We're called to rise above that and to be like God is, so that we can be a witness that he is God. And if he is holy, then we must also be holy. Doesn't he say that? Be holy as I am holy. So there, not in a nutshell, but in a long series, is what God has planned just ahead for the church of God.